How are you doing? I'm Doug Devaney, and you're listening to the Plastic Podcasts, Tales of the Irish Diaspora. Find us and subscribe to us at www.plasticpodcasts.com. Here at the Plastic Podcasts, we don't see ourselves as part of the establishment. In fact, the closest we come is calling ourselves we, when all this is, is one man in a back room with a microphone and an Arts Council grant. All that changes today, however, as we play host to Dame Elizabeth Anionwu, one of the BBC's list of 100 most influential women in the world in 2020. Awarded the Damehood for her work on sickle cell and thalassemia, she was born in Birmingham to a Nigerian father and an Irish mother, a dual heritage that is the subject of her book, Mixed Blessings from a Cambridge Union. Raised in a convent, she was inspired to become a nurse at the tender age of four. For all the plaudits and awards, perhaps what makes Dame Elizabeth even more of a pillar of the establishment is the fact that earlier this year she was a castaway on Desert Island Discs. It's been quite the life so far, and so naturally we start by talking about death. I experienced my first death at 18, you know, a very naive, um, sheltered kid. I mean, you know, I, I... I'd had a very sheltered ex- experience and, you know, to be thrust on a ward and just told by a third year student nurse, go and help this other first year nurse, we were in the same cohort, to lay out a body. I mean, come on, you know, no, no, no sort of preparation. It, it, you just and get on with it. And it, it, it was emotionally quite can you prepare for that sort of thing can you prepare for that sort of thing well i think you can actually prepare students or or at least share with students a more experienced person sharing with new students their their feelings and experiences as they carried out laying out a, 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 a dead individual and also you know, therefore, you're not surprised at the reaction that you get, because if you're not prepared for the reaction, you, you go away feeling really guilty sometimes. Um, I, I mean, the, I, I describe in my memoirs that, that uh, my friend and I were both 18, having been told to go and um, prepare this deceased gentleman for, you know, um, the mortuary. And he was, he was huge and his, his abdomen was huge because of the nature of the illness that he had died from. He collected fluid in his abdomen. Nobody prepared us for that. We just thought, go and, go and do that. Now, if somebody had sat and look, just be aware that when you go in, that, that, you know, because when we walked into the, it wasn't even a cubicle, it was a um, curtained off area of, of the ward. All we saw was the sheet over this body and then the sheet going like that, literally. And then up to his, what, what, would it, what was his face? And we both looked at each other. And we were both short. Mm-hmm. And I had to get around one side of the bed and my friend got around the other side. We had to wash this gentleman's body, which, which, which required turning him over so that we could, you know, um, wash his back. Now, that, that, I think that we, we weren't the, the students that should have been sent into that. They should have sent taller, bigger students in, to be quite honest, because it, um, it, it, it was really, it was actually quite a scary task for us. So when I pushed this gentleman over towards my friend so that I could wash his back, nobody had prepared us for the expulsion of air that can happen with a dead person. Now, come on. So what did we hear? So, 
Well, we, we, we were just hysterical and hysterical laughter. And the ward sister heard us because we were quite near our office. And the, 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 she, she slightly whipped the, the curtains back, pushed them, you know, closed them quickly after and was standing there. And I mean, we were just, that made it even worse, of course. There were tears coming down our, our cheeks because we, this is awful, my God. She was fantastic, Doug. She really was. I mean, that's what a teacher is, should be like. She was sharp with us in the sense of, right, cover the gentleman up, come into my office. Fortunately, we didn't have to walk very far. When she shut the door. But before she shut the door, she called another nurse and she whispered something to her. And thought, oh, God, what's going on here? Shut the door. What she'd asked that nurse to do was to go and get us some tea. You can imagine because she realized the shock we were in and the fear that we were in because we you know we've been discovered you know what i mean and she we we were crying we were petrified and she said look stop okay you don't need to cry you're not in any trouble and then started to explain to us look oh and she was cross with the third year student who should have been with us because we shouldn't have been left alone so no it was our first experience of this and she'd asked the third year student to organise getting another student to help her. And, and unbeknown to the ward sister, the third year student had just got two first year students and told them to get on with it. So, you know, there's all sorts of things going on. And in the end, you know, she sat with us, had tea with us, um, and actually called the third year student in who uh, gave her a ticking off. I tell you, it was, we were all wailing at one point, you know, and then she stopped us all, just come on, right, let's not, let's, you know. And, we had this tea and biscuits with her. And what was interesting, she talked about death and dying. She, she turned it into a sort of tutorial. I've always remembered that in terms of the role that we all have in teaching or junior staff, junior people. Yeah, fascinating. Where it, it switched from where it was like, we thought we were gonna be punished and fearful to actually a very nice tutorial. Thank you very much. Yeah. Is it what you'd um, is it what you'd envisaged when you were? I'm reading from your your the, the 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 biography on your on your website here. At the age of four, you were inspired. Most yes, uh, Doug. You, most of it was uh, because what what attracted me to nursing was having experienced the the care from a, a brilliant nurse who who happened to be a nun in the uh, and and a, and a nurse uh, in the. Catholic children's home that I grew up in till the age of nine and I'd had very bad eczema and the way she distracted me from pain while she was taking the dressing off you know I, I'll never forget that as a young child and this what I loved about her was that I just associated with her with not feeling any pain whereas if I went to another nun who didn't use that similar approach it would be a very painful experience having the dressing not quite torn off but just taken off briskly and um yeah and i thought i i want because of the positive experience i had with this nun i i i wanted to be like her not a nun but a nurse yeah and what age did you go into care oh from three three months of age my mother looked after me in a mother and baby home no actually for six I was six months old my mother looked after me I didn't I didn't know the exact period she looked after me at that early age until I was decided to write my memoirs and I 
contacted the uh, Nazareth House Catholic uh, organization that ran the children's home to see if they had any photographs of me. They didn't have any photographs, but they sent me this incredible dossier of all my records that they had. So I, I, that's when I learned I, exactly when I was admitted and circumstances. And yeah, it was six months of age. I started in the Father Hudson's homes, which was for the younger children. And then I moved on at three and a half, apparently, to Nazareth House, which was for the older children. I stayed there until I was nine when I went to stay with my mother and stepfather. I'm going to talk about that in a second, if I may. Mm -hmm. uh, but first of all, let's let's rewind slightly to your to your to your mother and your father meeting. I mean, you've talked about yes. it in 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 your book, um, but um, they met at Cambridge, didn't they? That's right. My mother was in her. Well, my mother was studying classics. She went in 1945, so the last year of the Second World War. She got a scholarship. And your mother is Irish, yes. She's of Irish heritage in the sense that it was it's her great grandparents. Were, was the, the 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 generation that were born and brought up in Ireland? My grandparents were born in Liverpool in 1896, and my mother was born in Liverpool in 1926. I re I, I actually commissioned a genealogist from um, Dublin to look into the Irish heritage side. It's fascinating. Because uh, there wasn't much records, except my great aunt Kate had written a letter to my cousin, s setting out quite a bit of family history, and the genealogist said that that was absolutely fantastic. Those were the, the, the if, if you like, the clues that he needed uh, to explore much, much, much more deeply into our Irish heritage. And he was able to go back to the 1840s. My word, that's good work, actually. That's very good work. With the lack of, well, you know, I'm sure the, 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 the records are not that brilliant for various reasons in terms of the, 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 one of the key census, um, I can't remember which, 18 something or other, was, there was a fire in Dublin and destroyed, destroyed a lot of, of, the, of the records. But it was the church records, of course, that uh, where everybody registered their birth and death in the church in, in Ireland that, and, and in this country as well. That's been a huge source of information for many people looking for their family history. Um, yeah. So your mother is of Irish heritage and studying classics at Cambridge? At Cambridge. And my father was Nigerian and he had uh, been awarded a scholarship to study law. In, in again in Cambridge and um, we're talking about the second the period of the Second World War my father came over in 1942 in the middle of Second World War which I thought was quite interesting he started his studies um, I think Trinity Hall uh, and my mother hers was 1945 at New Newnham College to study classics I don't I've never found out how they met or anything like that it would have been nice but you know, by the time I was really curious about it they're, they're both deceased so I couldn't really ask anybody so your, your mother your, your mother met your father and your father met your mother mm -hmm. and you were born nine months later yeah in 1947 mm -hmm. 
Yeah. And my mother wasn't married and Catholic, well, the whole Irish Catholic heritage can imagine. So you can just Im only imagine what the shock was for my poor mother when she realized she was pregnant. And uh, I've only got, well, this is, this is quite good that I have this. I have the oral history from my aunt, so my mother's younger sister, who I'm very, very close to. And uh, my mother wouldn't, didn't tell her parents that she was pregnant. It was my grandmother that realized uh, the situation when she was finishing sewing a dress for my a skirt and was doing the fitting and tape measure around my mom's waist when she was six months pregnant. So my grandmother quickly realized what the situation was to her horror, everybody's horror, you know. My grandfather was a stalwart of the Catholic Church and was friends with the local parish priest. And he went straight to the parish priest to seek advice. And, they t and also my mother was a bright student at Cambridge University. You know, I think there was a bit of status going on there and a, 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 a desire to enable my mother to complete her studies which she didn't in the end, but not due to lack of support. I mean, I think there was a lot of irritation that my mother decided to drop out in spite of all, all the um, connections and support that she got between the church and my family and the university. The university never knew that she was pregnant. They were told that she'd had a nervous breakdown and was rehabilitating in um, Ireland you know and, and for me when I came across these papers I, I was fascinated because I was brought up very much in a strict Catholic environment in a convent come on and and my um, contact with the Catholic Church lasted until I was 16 when I left my grand, grand, grandmother's house and you know you're taught never to lie and da, 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 and to sort of see in all these papers the, the collusion going on between the church and the university. Well, so the university didn't know. So, you know, the lies that were being told, and I think, well, that's interesting. So you can lie in certain circumstances, but not in others, you know. <laughs> but, you know, but there, there was a lot of support for my mother, I have to say. Yes. So at, um, was it three months old, you were taken into the, um, in, 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 into the care of the church? Six, six months six old, old, I was taken into um, the Father Hudson's homes, mm -hmm. which, which were in Birmingham. And I stayed there uh, until I was five, I think. And then I moved to the Nazareth House convent, the children's home, again in Birmingham. And my memory is of Nazareth House. I don't remember. I vaguely have a memory of being on the veranda as a, as a toddler. So that would have been the Father Hudson's homes. But it's, it's Nazareth House children's home that I remember. And that, that I do start to describe in, in terms of my memoirs. Yeah. What are your memories of it? Overall, I was happy, which actually isn't the classic narrative of being brought up in a Catholic children's home. <laughs> Far from it. I, and some... And well, many people have had horrible experiences, traumatic experiences of growing up in care or, or growing up under the auspices of nuns and priests. You know, we've, we've read so many of these. 
I, I was fortunate, I think, that on the whole, I, I was happy. I mean, the negative experiences are due to the fact that I wet the bed. So those children, um, like me, we had horrible punishment for that. Do you want me to describe it? If you wouldn't mind. No, it was horrible. So what would happen was the nun, you'd, you could see she was bad tempered. Oh, another, you know, they, they inspect your beds in the long dormitory, you can imagine. And we'd wait. We knew what was coming. Oh, you know, so you've wet your bed tonight, uh, this last night. So they briskly take the wet sheet and we, we would be basically frog marched down to a little area. We'd all have to get onto a chair. Look, I left the convent when I was nine. We're talk I wet the bed all the time I was there. So I'm talking about probably from being five, six, seven, eight, you know, really young. We'd stand on a, each of us stand on a chair and then they drape our, the urine soaked sheet over our body. That wasn't enough punishment. They made us stretch our arms out under the sheet, keep them high, and you were punished if, if your arms started to fall, which of course they do quite quickly, by a nun on the other side of the sheet, whacking you with something like a ruler to get your arms back up. Really cruel. And even as a child, Doug, I thought, gosh, nuns are supposed to be brides of Christ, you know, kind people, <laughs> Christian people. I thought this, this wasn't very Christian. It's really cool. But, you know, when I read somebody else's narrative, I can't remember the book, but this was, she had a very traumatic experience growing up in Australia and in a Nazareth House convent. She, she had similar treatment to being a bedwetter. That, I thought that was interesting. Um, so where these nuns were taught this punishment, I don't know. But um, having said that, her experience was was vile. I mean, she was subject to physical abuse and all sorts of mental abuse as well. I, I the the punishment for bedwetting was probably the worst punishment that I had. Um, as my experience of a genuine, generally more positive, it's where I learned Irish dancing, which I actually adored. Um, I think I was a favourite of some of the nuns. Uh, I was taught to play the piano. There must have been just a few of us being taught to play the piano. And if we got our, we did our exercises well, we would be taken out to Birmingham City Centre to have Knickerbocker glories. Can you imagine? I mean, you know, I, I have beautiful memories, absolutely beautiful memories. You're listening to The Plastic Podcasts, Tales of the Irish Diaspora. We all come from somewhere else. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter or Instagram. At the age of nine, Elizabeth left Nazareth House to live with her mother and her stepfather. What followed wasn't pleasant. To start with, it was pleasant. Obviously, my mother was delighted to have me uh, with her. And my stepfather initially was very pleasant. Um, jokey. He was a long-distance lorry driver. By this time I had a, a, a half-brother and another half-brother was on the way and I think he, he arrived literally months after I had arrived. So in that sense, you know, I, I, I had never experienced a family home like that with brothers and a baby brother. And it was wonderful for a nine-year-old, ten-year-old, you know, to have a baby in the house. And, but it, it started to change 
later I discovered it was because my stepfather was being teased by his mates in the pub. He drank, he liked to drink. What's he doing with a half-caste child in the house? This is the mid-1950s in Wolverhampton. I was the only black child in the neighbourhood. And he started to take it out of me. I think it was under the influence of alcohol as well. When my mother wasn't around, um, just physically assaulting me for the minest infraction, I wouldn't even call it infraction, not being able to dry the glasses properly because the, and I was a very logical child because I, what I didn't realise, that was making it worse because I was basically answering back. I, I didn't think I was answering back, but he, he would um, whip me with the damp tea towel that I was using. It's really painful that, you know, it's, it's all like whiplash. And, and showing me this um, damp glass, which should be shiny, he's telling me. And I'm saying, well, the, but the tea cloth is damp. Don't you answer me back. <laughs> you know, and I, I was so inside, I was so angry. You know, I can't help the glass not being able, you know, I knew why. And I was trying to explain it. I quickly realized, shut up, Elizabeth. That's actually making it a lot worse, you know. And could smell the alcohol on his breath, you know, and oh horrible mm. so you left then at what about the age of 10 and a half 11 yes I was nearly 11 and that was because I, I, my mother definitely hadn't been aware of the physical abuse because he was very clever um, and my mother worked so I think he was it was you know when she was working so she found out oh because there was one absolutely brutal assault um, what happened was I was I was in bed and I, I just heard the thumping and coming up the stairs and I knew what it was going to be about because the, that evening, for some reason, I had a lovely half-brother. He's now deceased, uh, very, very close to Michael. And um, for some reason, I'd kicked him. Well, you know, I, siblings you know, can get pretty occasionally violent with each other, even though they love them. And my mother rude the day, I think, that she told my stepfather when he came in about me kicking Michael. That, that was his, you know, that was their first child. And he was drunk. And he just, that was, that was it. He was up the stairs, pulled me out of the bed, dragged me down the stairs, just phys physically hit me. And I went flying across the small front room and hit my eyebrow on the hearth and you know that's like metal hard and burst open blood pain screaming that was it for my mother because very soon after that my grandfather came and I was went with him to live with him and my grandmother and my aunt Pat in the north of England uh, Wallasey just across the River Mersey from Liverpool so that that's where I spent my uh, adolescence. So um, when we were talking before you said that so basically it was until about the age of 16 you had what you call your Irish upbringing. Mm, yes so I'm definitely. presuming that the, the, the last six, four years of that were the that was with your, um, with, with, with your my with grandparents. Your yes they had um, one of these what, what do you call them stereophone record you know radio and a record player. The old stereogram. The stereogram, thank you. It was the, a present for my aunt's 21st birthday, which had happened just a few months before I arrived. So spanking new. 
and she liked jazz so she and I, I wasn't so much into jazz then and I still like jazz but it's not my preferred genre I have to be honest but I do not but I remember because they've recently done a, a wonderful documentary on Ella Fitzgerald and she loved my aunt loves Ella Fitzgerald so I just remember she had to, her records but there was a there was a, 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 a an Irish musical collection and that's what I liked John McCormack and I remember the LP and I always thought what beautiful eyes John McCormack has the, the, the photograph they had of him I, I actually fell in love with John McCormack because a I loved his voice I mean what what a voice but there was it was just a beautiful photograph and that was one of my favorite LPs actually I mean there were there were, there were others as well uh, so there was the Irish music there was the Irish food my mother, my grandmother um, did soda bread and stews and yeah, um, so it was the music. But you know also, Doug, it was the storytelling and the humour. I was very close to my grandfather, I have to say. Um, I was very, very sad when he died. I was probably coming up to 13, he died of uh, pneumonia. Because there's something about our relationship. He, he, he was so pleased that I enjoyed history. And he was the one that taught me a lot about Irish history. We used to go for walks. We had a dog and but just go off together, the pair of us. Um, I, 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 but I remember once going to stay with my great aunt. So these were the, the yeah, the, the sisters, Lil and Kate, great aunt Lil and great aunt Kate they were the sisters of my grandfather and I was very close to them but I do remember once and they were very devout Catholics the pair of them oh incredibly devout walking in the neighborhood of Liverpool where we where, where they lived and they were greeted by some neighbors in the street and my great aunt Kate introduced me to them as the adopt their adopted niece that, that I was adopted and I thought hello 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 didn't say anything they never said anything to me we never discussed it and I thought these are strict Catholics who are lying about my origins and that made me realize there was stigma about my color although they they were very kind to me this brown skin color was a step too far for them to say that I oh, will actually you know isn't that I always remember that as a child you learn if people don't speak about something don't don't ask any questions about it why why are they not you know about my father because people the fact that people were saying where are you from where are you really from I I, I remember thinking well I must have got this skin color from my father not obviously not from my mother and it I, I never asked my mother well, my poor mother, I mean, she was working every hour God gave her and there was all this problem. And it's only a short period I lived with her, remember. And I certainly wouldn't have asked my grandmother about my father. You know, nobody talked about him there. So I had the sense not to ask questions, you know. But that meant that I, I had this void in knowing about my full identity till I was a young adult. So I was going to say, you were reunited with your father, weren't you? Yes, because what happened, I wrote to my mother when I was 22. I was now a health visitor in London. My mum was still living in the Midlands. And I asked about my father. Because up until this time, oh, 
at that time. I, my, my maiden name, sorry, I had my mother's maiden name, Furlong, good Irish surname. Um, and I asked, wrote and asked my mother to tell me about my father, which she did immediately. And that's when I read that my father's name was Lawrence Odiata Victor Anion. And um, when I, so I had this, I had my father's details and my mum had said, look, I don't think you'll ever find him. We've lost contact before the internet, of course, you know. She wasn't sure it was a good idea for me to try and find him because she was worried I might be rejected by his family. And I, but I knew I was going to make some inquiries. Um, and for three months, I had my father's name at the back of my small diary. And then one day I remember, I didn't know any Nigerians, but I then realized that I knew a gentleman from Sierra Leone, a barrister, who in passing had told me that occasionally he taught Nigerian law students. I thought, ah, let's ask John if he could find out where my father's name came from in Nigeria, because by now it's a couple of years after the dreadful Nigerian civil war, the Biafran war. So I knew there were different ethnic groups in Nigeria. So we're talking about 1972. So he said, okay, leave it with me, Elizabeth. It was a Monday evening in June, 1972. And um, so I, that was it. Wednesday morning, John rang me at my clinic and said, I've spoken to your father. It was that fast that I discovered my father. And I, I, he gave me the phone number and said, your father wants to speak to you. I've spoken to him, dropped the phone on John, picked the phone up straight away. Cause I, 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 was, I was sick in the stomach. I have to be honest, I was, I was really pleased, but a bit anxious as well. And I realized if I didn't pick the phone up straight away, I might take a long time to ring that number. So I just rang my father and he greeted me at the other end of the phone went to see him the next day and we got on so well for the eight years that I was to know him before he died. He died quite young and it sorted me out. I became complete. And I, looking back very, not, not long after I met my father, I realized I was a calmer individual. I was a more confident, prouder, uh, you know, I was proud of who I was rather than the shame of being constantly asked, where are you from my dear, because of this. And being different because until the age of 18, I grew up totally with white people. A part of the puzzle was completed. Definitely. And I was complete. I felt complete as well. You're listening to The Plastic Podcasts. We all come from somewhere else. It's more than just a hashtag. If you're new here, or even if you're not, and you want to keep up with all the plastic that's fit to broadcast, why not subscribe? Simply go to the bottom of our homepage at www.plasticpodcasts.com and pop your email in the space provided. One confirmatory click later, you'll be on the list and notified of each fresh podcast. We'll be back with Elizabeth Anionwu in a moment, but first, The Plastic Pedestal where I ask one of my interviewees to name a member of the diaspora of personal or cultural significance to them. This week, Sharon Boyle, author of 50 Years in the Making, the celebration of Leeds Irish Centre, proposes a pair of personal pedestals. I suppose really I've got two. Um, and the first would be my dad's mum, um, Margaret Martin Boyle, um, who at 19 what was became an official cancelled passenger on the Titanic 
um, a line is through her ticket name and number because her cousin couldn't get a ticket and she was on the next boat that left. Um, she got to America, worked as a maid in Hartford, met and fell in love with a... The family myth was uh, that it was German. So this would be 1912 onwards, around First World War. Now, uh, I've since done research. He was actually, he had a German stepmother. So that was possibly one thing, but probably what was worse is that he wasn't Catholic. Um, she was sent back to Ireland, had a semi-arranged marriage really with my grandfather. Uh, uh, went on to, she had seven children, including a set of twins. He was so ill with rheumatoid arthritis, she virtually had to look after him, run the farm and look after the kids. But not only that, the neighbouring Donnelly children were orphaned, seven children, and she um, kept an eye on them. Over And when a land-grabbing rich neighbour came to try and grab the Donnelly's land, my feisty grandmother, um, he brought along a priest's brother and my feisty grandmother pushed him in the bog and my uncle remembers his uh, trilby hat floating in the bog. So uh, she, um, she was a beautiful woman as well and she lived to be 92, dying of old age. And uh, and I suppose the, the, the second heroine really would be um, my great-great-grandmother who was widowed, barely literate, beautiful again, dark hair, high cheekbones, and raised children as best as she could, you know. So they, they'd be my heroines. Sharon Boyle there. And if you want to hear more from the Leeds Irish Centre interview, and frankly you're missing a treat if you don't, then why not go to the episodes page at www.plasticpodcasts.com. Alternatively, you can find the interview on Spotify, Amazon or Apple Podcasts. Now back to Elizabeth Anionwu. And while reuniting with her father may have completed the puzzle, it didn't end the story. Here we talk about reconciling with her black identity and the politics of health. I'd gone to Paris. I'd lived in Paris for nine months. and. Um... I worked as in a, a clinic, um, but also taught English to the two children of the doctors who ran the clinic. And I became very friendly with a French Benin midwife. And I told her one day the story about washing my face 10 times in the children's home to try and become white, like my friends. And she said, Elizabeth, I know the very book you need to read which was by Franz Fanon, called Black Skin, White Mask. Franz Fanon was a psychiatrist from the French Caribbean island of Martinique, but very radical, I think he was a Marxist. And he had uh, gone to work in Algiers French, during the French colonial era as a psychiatrist in a large psychiatric hospital in, in the capital. And he became aware of how he thought that, that that's this, this book, Black Skin, White Mask, that the impact of colonialism and neocolonialism had on black skin, brown skinned individuals who were ruled by white people, that subconsciously or even consciously, they, they disliked their brown black skin because it was seen as inferior in this situation and really ide ideated, idealized, wanted 
thought of themselves wanted to be white and it's a beautiful beautiful book and the scales came off my eyes when i read that book and it really made me understand uh the doubts and the shame and that i had grown up with being different because of my skin color and wishing as most children do wanting to be like all the others and not stand out and um it it, it really helped me understand that and also, I mean, I was already starting to feel proud of who I was and you know, what, becoming interested in politics and understanding where this negativity had arisen from and you know, sort of sorting myself out and well, what's all this about? You know, you are who you are and um, suck it up, basically. Is hell political? Oh, gosh, yes, of course it is. Anything, anything that affects the human being, in, particularly in a negative way, is political because it impacts on how society views us how we're treated in society how individuals for example with mental health conditions um the stigma historically of that has been horrific uh, uh the dispossessed feeling always as other outsider not belonging and i think this is the key issue that i i i have not experienced some of the most traumatic experiences that some people the Irish diaspora have experienced and the black diaspora um, experienced some. One of the things I can understand and, and, and I've lived it is this sense of being seen as an outsider when you know perfectly well you're not an outsider and uh, it, it comes back to some basic issues. Why do certain people think you're inferior because of your accent, your name, your origins, your, your skin colour? Is there something in the human psyche that makes us want to be superior to others? I think there is actually. I don't know what, I don't know what this is survival, but it's, it's negative. I don't like it. Um, uh, but we, we can all, we can all have those feelings of feeling superior to others for whatever reason. So, but, but in some situations where those feeling superior to you have much, much more power than you and block opportunities for such groups, for such individuals, um, that's when it, it, it's so negative in terms of um, trying to survive in society. And, and you can see wars have been created as a result, religious factions and language differences. Um, ethnic differences and the hatred that, that exists simply because you're not of the right faith or, or right skin colour it's it's horrific. Do you think that affects treatment as well? Oh yes we, we know there, there are inequalities in healthcare uh, I, and certainly from the, the, the area that I have been interested in sickle cell we know that when you compare it to an equally serious condition, so, you know, I don't believe in hierarchies of illness, but you look at a cystic fibrosis, which is a very serious uh, genetic condition affecting the lungs and the pancreas and all sorts, that predominantly affects the white Northern European communities. It does, to a much lesser extent, affect black and minority, uh, but to a very, very much lesser extent. So. You see with a condition like cystic fibrosis, which, as I've said, is serious and warrants, you know, care and support for the families. There's actually fewer 
cases of cystic fibrosis than there are of sickle cell disease. But if you look at the allocation of resources, it's, 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 it's the reverse. And what is the big difference? One affects mainly white communities and one affects mainly black communities. That's to me, the, uh, in other areas, they're very similar. The inheritance pattern is the same. They're both, as I've said, very serious conditions. Both can cause death early on. Um, so both require screening programs. You know, so in terms of conditions, they're very, very similar. But who they affect is different. And as a result of that, historically, you can map out the inequalities, even, even though cystic fibrosis could do with much more support. They still have more support than, than condition like sickle cell disease. And as I've said, I'm, I'm very careful not to pit one condition against another. But when we're talking about health inequalities, it is useful to have some examples. So <laughs> that you're not just spouting. So, uh, you mentioned being an outsider and uh, at, at surface level, of course, it's like a, you're, you're, you're part Nigerian, uh, part Irish. Uh, and also in, in in British communities and so forth. And one way or the other, you're going to appear as an outsider to one, two of those three, those exactly. three sections. Exactly. And yet here you are, Dame Elizabeth Anionmu. Do you ever sort of go, well, how did I get here? Of course I do, Doug. I mean, come on. <laughs> it's a good job I've got a sense of humour. I mean, it's not that I don't take these awards seriously, but come on, you know, you know, the life I've lived, you know that there are, uh, other things are actually more important. Uh, they really are. Survival, friendship, families, um, jobs. So I'm, I'm very grateful for the honours, but I'm actually more grateful. I've got a daughter, I've got a granddaughter, I've got a flat, I've got friendship, friendships, um, and I've got music. And You know, there, there, there are actually things much more important. I have turned down an award, by the way. I, I did. I did read. I did write about it in my memoirs. I didn't. I didn't talk about it when it happened because I felt. I thought it was a private thing. So it's. It's. It. I. I. I obviously, I've accepted awards subsequently, but I turned down. Uh, it was an MBE in the mid eighties, and it was for sickle services, and I was honoured. But I wasn't happy about the fact that the National Health Service and the Department of Health were not doing enough for the families affected by these conditions. And so I pol politely wrote back, confidentially, as I said, I, never, I, I, didn't, I didn't want to make it public. Thank you very much. I'm honoured. But, you know, I'd rather I'd actually like to see these institutions providing more support to the families. Thank you very much. You're sincerely. And I don't, I don't like empire, by the way, either, which a lot of us don't like about the awards. You know? <laughs> and I, I respect those people who turn down on us simply because they, of the empire bit, I, you know. Um, but I, I, I got talked into accepting the, the, the CBE, which was the, the next award that I was given in was about 2001. It was for services to nursing. And a few friends sat me down because I, I needed to work this out. I didn't really want to accept it because of any of them. But they said, look, Elizabeth, you know, I, I, I don't think you will realise the impact that this will make, particularly for black nurses. It's a significant award. You, sh you should accept it. And you, you might be surprised at the impact that it's made. And I was, I was surprised at the impact it made. Uh, there's, I have a lot of friends, but also 
even during COVID lockdown, but certainly before COVID lockdown, I've been invited, I'm constantly invited to go around and give talks based on my memoirs and things. And it's often to mixed uh, ethnic groups. Um, I mean, different ethnic groups as well as mixed race as well. And sometimes to, to black groups, for example. And there's no question of it, the, the, the warmth and the impact it, it, it's made on, on nurses and midwives, generally, but particularly from black and minority ethnic backgrounds. They're proud that I've got an award like this. And many of them have said, it makes me realize, even though you've had all these difficulties, you, you, it, it is possible for us to, to make progress. It is possible for us to be rewarded, you know? So when you're constantly being told that, you think, mm, yeah, my friends were right, actually. I, I wasn't, I was still, I still, as I said, I've still got my concerns about the empire, you know. And then, and then, of course, once you've got one award, and when you years down the line you get invited for another one, it makes it a bit more difficult to turn it down. You're listening to the Plastic Podcasts: Tales of the Irish Diaspora. Find and subscribe to us at www.plasticpodcasts.com. In the last section of my interview with Dame Elizabeth Anionwu, we talk about her Nigerian and Irish heritages and what being a member of the diaspora means to her. I think there is a difference between the experiences of the Irish diaspora and the Nigerian diaspora. The Nigerians um, have never felt enslaved. They've, they've, they've had colonisation. When you look at the the, 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 the horrific history between Ireland and Britain, come on, you know, that, that, that I think that the, the, the trauma there, historically, wave upon wave upon wave upon, I, I mean, I, 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 sometimes I think, I'm surprised the Irish even talk to the British, you know what I mean? I, you know, obviously things, and I've seen, let's say I'm in, interested in history, um, so I, I, there are there are similarities in terms of types of relationships they've had with Britain, because of course that, as you've said quite rightly, Doug, although I am of Nigerian Irish heritage, I'm not. I've never I was never brought up in Ireland. I didn't grow up. I mean, I had aspects of Irish cultural heritage from the diaspora, but I wasn't born and brought up in Ireland. I speak Gaelic, you know what I mean. I, 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 that, and the same for Nigeria. I wasn't born and brought up in in Nigeria. I don't speak Igbo. Few words, but nothing. So, even though I'm very conscious and proud of the heritage, I also realise uh, I would be called what is it, plastic paddy? That's you know I I you know that that would I, and and also Nigeria. I do, I I'm I'm not. When I say I'm not Nigerian, I know I've got Nigerian heritage, but you, you understand what I'm saying. I, I didn't grow up uh, and I don't speak the language, I don't speak any. Uh, so I understand that. And gradually I've got very confident and proud of who I am. I'm a black British woman um, of Irish Nigerian heritage. Thank you very much. And I'm very comfortable with that, describing myself in those terms and uh, not being embarrassed that I don't speak this language or I don't speak that language, not being embarrassed that I don't understand 
certain aspects of the culture because I haven't grown up in it. Uh, well, it's not my fault. <laughs> this is my heritage. You know, I, I, I have been pulled up occasionally on both sides you know, years ago. You know, what you, you, you did it. I said, that's not my fault, is it? You know, I was born in this country. This is, this is my heritage here. This is my, well, it's not my heritage, but it's my experience. So the fact that I, for example, don't speak Igbo, it's not my fault. I, and and the, it's just that sometimes Nigerians can, Igbos, I have to talk about Igbos, can be very in your face about, oh, why? And I said, well, it's not my fault, you know. I can't help it that I didn't know my father. And that, 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 that shuts them up, I can tell you, you know. And then we get back to being pleasant, you know I mean? But I will, I will stand up and, and, and sort of explain and be, because I've thought about these things so much. You have to when you've mixed heritage, you have to, if you haven't grown up deeply ensconced in those cultures in a way that I, I, I haven't really, I mean, some aspects of it. Uh, but you, you know, we have to. If you're not proud of who you have ended up being, who you are, that's when all the negativity and self doubts and uh, I think come into play. When we look at that, though, we also I'm also I've also been aware of the um, the, the the rise in invisibility of the mixed race Irish. Yes, and things like that. And it, 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 uh, one, I wonder if that's uh, that's the same with with mixed race diaspora of, of of all kinds of different heritages. If there's a if there if there is a a, a sense of greater confidence in in talking about a, a mixed heritage rather than being one thing or another, and if so. Do you think it's down to anything in particular or or, or just the, the, the wave of history? Well, I would have thought that, for example, uh, members of mixed rest Irish that I know who were born and brought up in Ireland, brown-skinned, Irish accents, Irish surnames, many of them. Um, for them, to, to, and I know I've listened to this, for them to have been seen as other is particularly vicious, I think. You know, they they are really being slapped in the face again. You can you can have as much Irish heritage and Irish culture, and I mean, they are Irish. They are Irish. The fact that they've got brown skins, so what? And it's 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 a sad aspect of some aspect of Irish politics that there are those that think. If you're Irish, you must have a white skin. And that is there still. We know that. And that is the heritage of racism. And it's ironic, and I've, I've read some of the literature on this. It's, it's, it's more than ironic, it's, it's desperately sad. But you, you know, what I was talking about, how sometimes we, what we all can look down on others. But to have, Irish people who have come through all the travails that they have experienced to look down on others, you know, and thinking, hold on, step back a little bit, think about your own problems you've had with other groups in this world. Why are you suddenly now looking down your nose at Irish people who happen to have a brown skin? You need to take a look at yourselves. You need to know your history better. And you need to practice some of that faith or whatever belief you have in how you relate to fellow Irish people. Because I've seen, well, I follow a lot of the uh, 
um, through, through, through Mixed Race Irish. I mean, it's, it's an incredibly important organisation for me. It's a, a channel through which I do read about the debates that are going on in Ireland, for example, you know, and the experiences that some people, it's not all negative, don't get me wrong, but you know, the, 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 there are these issues. One final question, which is the question I ask all of the interviewees, which is what does being a member of the Irish diaspora, what has it meant to you? It's a source of pride to me to be part of the Irish diaspora because I've had the uh, privilege of growing up and having Irish culture embedded in me from childhood I, I i look back and it's not as though with my nigerian heritage i came to that as an adult and i'm very pleased i did and i i i i i've um it's brought me a lot of uh, value and enjoyment and interest but there's no doubt about it i, I used to be a health visitor so obviously i've studied issues about ch ch child psychology there's no doubt about it that whatever impacts on you as a child, I think does have a greater legacy for you than, than, than what you uh, experience as an adult. So I, I am really delighted that I had a, a really on the whole, very, very positive experiences of the Irish diaspora and the culture as whatever generation I came down in Birmingham. But you know, to, to to and this is why i still love uh irish music uh singing uh, literature history um and irish people today most of them anyway um i i know that that is because i was immersed in it to some extent from a ba uh, from babyhood into adulthood uh, as, as I said, certainly into, as a teenager, close family uh, and institutional uh, links, and I and I I know that that has helped me understand the Irish diaspora a little bit more than maybe some other people, uh, and certainly more than people would expect when they look at me, uh, and it's always a huge delight. Um, maybe I'll finish on this story. I remember when I was a student nurse. I would have been about 19 or so. And I was looking after this Irish lady. Uh, she, was, she was in bed and uh, she was a bit down and she was saying how much she missed some aspect of her Irish family back home. And uh, I told her I had an Irish heritage and she looked at me. She, no, you don't. I said, yes, I do. I gave, told her my sentence. Okay. Were you adopted? I said, no. no. And I said, I grew up in a, a convent run by Irish nuns and I did Irish dancing. Never. So I stood there, I looked around, there was hardly anybody in the ward and I did a little jig for her to see that woman laughing with tears running down her face and the joy it brought her. And she said, well, I'll never make that mistake again, Elizabeth. I will never judge people on how they look. You've been listening to The Placid Podcasts with me, Doug Devaney, and my guest, Dame Elizabeth Annie Onwood. Music by Jack Devaney. Find us at www.plasticpodcasts.com, email us at theplasticpodcasts at gmail.com, or simply follow us through Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. The Plastic Podcasts is sponsored using public funding by Arts Council England.